today's episode is all about rethinking the business model for accessing live events. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer experience and employee experience, and we find out what experiments they're running, what trends they're paying attention to, what are the principles in their career that have really driven their success. And then we take those insights and we apply those things to the world of sports and entertainment. Now, today's guest, we've got Ed Vincent on the show, and Ed Vincent is the founder and CEO of a company called Festival Pass. Now, when you think about what Festival Pass is, think Class Pass, but for live events. Ed and his team at Festival Pass are really trying to reinvent the model for accessing live events and the way that we go about deciding what events we go to as consumers. So a little bit more on Festival Pass. They are really the first, the world's first festival and live events subscription marketplace, providing access to thousands of experiences around the globe across music, film, food and wine, art, sports, theater, lifestyle, tech and innovation experiences, you name it, it's on their platform. And truly, it is a marketplace where a consumer can go on there, say, hey, here are my interests, here's what I'm interested in going in, here's the location, and all the live events in that area should pop up, right? Now, again, think Class Pass, where you've got, you're paying a flat fee subscription into Festival Pass. And as a part of that, there are included events in your membership, if that makes sense. Ed's going to talk a little bit more about that. I, uh, not by a little bit more. He's going to talk a lot more about how that model works. And we're going to think about and try to apply it to the world of sports and entertainment, obviously, uh, and how the way that Ed thinks about data specifically uh, can help us think differently about our businesses on, on the property side of thing, primarily. Um, previous to Festival Pass, again, I mentioned Ed's background in data. Uh, he has done a lot of work with a lot of different companies from a really, really strategic data side of things. So when you think about how Festival Pass recommends things, think about Netflix, right? When you log into Netflix, you've got your curated page based on the information that you've provided Netflix as to what your interests are, but also based on your true watching history. The same thing is going to be true for Festival Pass uh, as they really get rolling as live events open back up coming out of COVID. One of the interesting things that we hit on with Ed, uh, he played a big role uh, on the data side of things, helping trying to help trying to help MoviePass figure out what their future looked like. Um, he'll go into more depth on that story in the podcast, so I don't want to steal any thunder here. But just suffice it to say that Ed's background in data is really trying to help. He's really trying to help shape the future of the live events industry and and what that looks like for the consumer. Um, the, we're particularly fond of what Ed is doing on the data side of things as with our, our new business line, uh, Enterprise Solutions at Engagement. We are working on some of these same things with different technologies, helping sports properties better find the right tech partners for them. So ultimately, they can use that data to make better business decisions. Um, so it's a really interesting episode with Ed. Takes a definitely different viewpoint on the live events industry than a lot of people. I loved hearing his future forecast for what he thinks the live event industry has in store in the next 12 months. Um, but yeah, let's jump into this episode with Ed Vincent, the founder and CEO of Festival Pass. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Um, how are you? Doing well. It is uh, Friday morning. And uh, yeah, let, let's get into this episode. So talk to us a little bit about what you've been up to with Festival Pass. Um, obviously, COVID uh, ha has kind of given us a chance to rethink a lot of our businesses. But I'm excited to hear what you guys have been up to at Festival Pass. Give our listeners a little bit of a background of what Festival Pass is and how the idea came to be. Sure, sure. So uh, I think the easiest way to, to approach that is there's context to every conversation and context to every idea. Um, so personally, I've been an entrepreneur for over 20 years, um, was an investment banker up until 1999, and then jumped into the Internet 1.0 world, uh, had an e-commerce company from 1999 to 2001. 
which I sold. Uh, and then I had a experiential marketing agency for most of the 2000s. We worked a lot in um, live events and bringing brands into those experiences. Uh, we helped uh, launch a couple of film festivals. We owned a film festival down in the Dominican Republic, and we even created a branded hotel down there with Maxim Magazine called the Maxim Bungalows, which is a lot of fun back then. Um, cool. fast, fast forward a little bit, and uh, I had a SaaS business, which I sold in 2014 in the franchise and multi-unit space. And then for the last five years, leading up to Festival Pass, I had a, a data consultancy and a um, software platform for mostly the entertainment space. So think of the big television brands like A&E Networks and AMC Networks and Chorus Entertainment out of Canada. Um, we were doing a lot in the TV and film space, um, helping, helping them understand their audience strategy. So we would help them aggregate, enrich, and then activate data. Uh, and along those lines, during that time, there was a company called MoviePass that a lot of people uh, kind of know the rise and fall story of, uh, which happy to get into if you, uh, yeah, if you have think, any questions on that. I think we definitely should get into that as a as a as a guy that always sees every Marvel movie on Thursday night, right? I think we'll we'll get into that in a little bit, but continue uh, continue. Yeah, so the context there was I was asked to come in as their interim chief data officer, um, still within my, the. My company, I never went in full time, but spent you know three or four days a week there really helping them uh, decipher what the three and a half million subscribers uh, were and how to aggregate that data and do something with it. Um, so during that time there, um, I learned a lot about what to do and what not to do uh, in subscription marketplaces in the entertainment space. Uh, and I often like to use the reference to John Bolton's book, uh, The Room Where It Happened. Um, you know, I felt like in some times I was sitting there watching you know, sometimes a train wreck about to happen while at the same time, an amazing product market fit. So, so there had, there was a story there to be learned, uh, or at least a lesson to be learned. Um, so I started looking at other, other spaces. Uh, and I, I saw that the live event industry was a $200 billion industry globally. Uh, and I saw a lot of fragmentation. So when you think of some of the big, uh, brands out there, Live Nation, AEG, um, you know, collectively, everybody thinks they own the entire world. They really only own 10, 15% total of the, of the global market. And that leaves a large disparate market, which I believe was very ripe for a marketplace business model. Fascinating. And we're going to get into all of this. Uh, so I, I think what I heard you just say is really kind of as your background, two core things kind of stand out, which are really this passion for innovating and experimenting, but also heavily grounded in data and data analytics, yes. right? Th those two things Absolutely. seem to stand out for me. Um, Very true. As you, as you think about some of the lessons from movie pass, especially, I think as that being your, your last role, let's talk, maybe let's talk a little bit of movie pass, give some more context and then we'll sure. set up, it'll set up kind of the rest of the episode as well. For people that are unfamiliar with movie pass, talk to us a little bit about some of the rise and fall and, and what you saw. Sure. So MoviePass had been around for since 2012, but it wasn't into, until I think August of 2018, where um, they were purchased by a group uh, that bought, um, you know, a large majority share of them uh, through a publicly traded uh, shell company. Uh, and what happened was they were able to infuse tens of millions of dollars into the company um, and use a model of very fast growth where they created this amazing product market fit, which was, hey, for 10 bucks, you can go to as many movies as you want in the movie theater. Um, it was a great value proposition for anybody that loved movies. Um, and uh, the idea initially for them was, hey, let's just get as many subscribers as we can. We'll work through the breakage model like gyms do. And, you know, 30% of the people or 20% of the people will go to a few extra movies and the rest won't go at all. And we'll, we'll find a margin. Um, there's an inherent problem in that. Um, it's a lot harder to create a breakage model when you have a cost of goods sold that you have to pay somebody else for. And that makes total sense. And I, I'm interested to hear how you apply it to the live entertainment space. I mean, maybe maybe this is the good chance to talk about how you approach that with how you're doing that differently and how you're learning from that with Festival Pass and approaching it differently with almost a credit system. Um, yep. Maybe we let's let's dive into the, the credit system and how you guys have used that to approach solving for the problem you just described. Yeah, and I, and I can't uh, take credit for the credit system. No, no double entendre there. Um, but uh, the ClassPass is another brand that people might know, uh, which is now a multi-billion dollar company in 30 countries. Um, but ClassPass 
didn't innovate the credit model, but they applied it to a subscription-based concept. And, and that's what really kind of struck me as, wow, this credit model works for so many reasons. So going back a little bit, they had all the same problems early uh, that MoviePass did in terms of trying to find a way to charge a monthly subscription, let people first go unlimited uh, to understand the model. It, it didn't really work that well. Then they tried, let's let people go to three classes or five classes and just pick the overall number. But the problem inherently with that model is that um, it's a heterogeneous inventory. It's not one thing that has super high gross margin that you can, it doesn't matter, like a software product can be unlimited because you can you can serve as many of them as possible and you're not paying for everyone every time. But when you have a heterogeneous business model, what I mean by that is uh, all the products are, are different prices. So in their model, in the same in live events, you might have a class for $10 or a class for $40. How do you allow the same class to be sold at three units per month or whatever it is? So about four or five years ago, ClassPass innovated or applied and changed their entire business model to a credit-based currency. Uh, and right out of the gate, you know, I actually advocated for something like that at MoviePass. Um, and uh, but right out of the gate, decided when I approached Festival Pass, we would we would just start with that process. We would we would be a credit based currency. So how would it have worked at Movie Pass, a credit based system? I'm trying I'm trying to just give us, our listeners as much context for this credit system as possible. Yeah, I can tell you how it's going to work here at Festival Pass. At Movie Pass, it would have been a total overhaul, and it could like what credit based systems allow for is that it allows for dynamic pricing without changing. The monthly subscription price. So in the movie space, it may have been that on a Wednesday afternoon at 12 noon, you're paying five credits, but at uh, a Friday at 8 p.m. where it's packed, you're paying 10 credits. So that ability to create a different currency for in the movie space, it's the same price ticket, right? So it's $15 Wednesday afternoon or it's $15 Friday night. Um, but by having a credit-based system, you could change the dynamics so that um, you're actually offering or incentivizing people to go uh, at off times. That's you know the airline business. It's it's supply and demand. It 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 feels like the live event business has gotten more into dynamic pricing, much more so than the movie theater business. I mean, again, it, it is always mind blowing to me that you know the the rom com that got a twenty percent on Rotten Tomatoes on a Wednesday afternoon costs the same as a a Marvel movie premiere. Yeah. So make makes sense though, but I think this credit, the idea of credits makes more sense for live and entertainment because it feels like they're more ready for that. And so I guess yeah. I guess as I guess as we're summing it up, basically, a user's paying a set amount of dollars, let's call it twenty dollars a month, and in exchange for that USD, they're getting a made up currency or whatever it is that credit based system that they can then allocate to whatever products are in your inventory. Is that? Is that basically, basically that, is, that, is, that is correct. Yes. Okay. So sorry about that. I'm just uh, I'll put do not disturb on that. Um, oh, no, no, you're good. So uh, yeah, so that's the answer. So people pay a monthly fee, they get credits, and they can spend those credits in thousands of different events. And over time, in our world, we'll provide other things they can actually spend those credits on to make sure that when they commit to that monthly fee, um, it provides a recurring predictable revenue stream for us. And they're able to roll those credits over when they don't use them. And we just always want to make sure that they have the ability to use them for something they want. So, of course, they can use them to go to a live event. Um, we'll eventually have movies actually back into our platform. So mm. if they on Wednesday they want to go to a movie, they can go to a movie. If they want to use it to book a hotel room, maybe we'll let them use it to book a hotel room. I love it. So let's talk about Festival Pass and what are the actual types of events uh, that'll be on there. Obviously, the live event space is everything from, you know, almost conventions to your summer festivals, your music, sports, sports games, right? All in the yep. live event space. So what do you envision right now? I guess when when the when the world open back, when the world opens back up, what all different types of products will you guys have on the Festival Pass platform? Yeah, so it's important for us to have all genres. Um, we are focused on the consumer space today, um, so less uh, meetings or conferences, but it doesn't mean we wouldn't think about that in the future. Um, we have kind of right before the pandemic, we were talking to a lot of kind of large tech uh, conferences, if you will. I think when you think of South by Southwest, it's half half uh, festival uh, music and half conference. So things like that will be on the platform. Got it. Um, 
but uh, but mostly it's music, film, food and wine, tech and innovation, sports, theater, Broadway, stuff like that. Uh, so it's the ability for somebody to pretty much go to anything that's a live event. Uh, obviously, anything we can get onto the platform uh, and make it available. So it's not just only for music fans. We spend a lot of time at engagement in the sports space. I'm fascinated at what some of the conversations have been with any of the the major properties or anything that you guys have had that you can tell us uh, and what some of the difficulties have been with some of the major players in the space. Like we mentioned earlier, a, a ticket master, a live nation. Um, how has it, how, what, what have the difficulties been in getting people on the platform? And I'm particularly curious, obviously about the sports space. Sure. So, so there's a couple of things, right? So um, we work with a bunch of ticket aggregators as well. So uh, folks that are um, providing, you know, an aggregation of, of tickets, um, some at a discounted level already, others maybe not at a discounted level um, to be able to access some of that inventory. Of course, we work directly with um, some venues themselves, some rights holders, um, uh, and even primary ticketing companies. Um, some of the ones you mentioned, we don't necessarily work with today. But I presume over the next couple of years, we will. Um, you know, my goal as a startup is to, to get out there, um, you know, get hundreds of thousands of, of paid subscribers and then have some of those larger conversations. Um, and but, and I can get into it, but even the Live Nations of the world, one of our advisors is the former CMO of Live Nation, Live Nation Concerts. Um, you know, I think I saw in some of the notes that you uh, had mentioned prior to the show, uh, you asked about Live Nation's own festival pass. And um, she was the one who created that. And so I know all about what made it work and not work and all the things that go with it. Uh, so it's very helpful to to have that level of advisors that really can, you know, opine on different parts of the industry. I love it. Um, well, let, let's talk a little bit more, I guess, conceptually, and then we can kind of get into some of the details here. As you as you think about these, these bigger uh, going against the grain companies and ideas, um, how, how do you approach, I guess, battling with those big incumbents, uh, that are, that obviously are incentivized to prohibit change because they own the marketplace. How, how do you approach not, you're not going to battle with them, but how do you approach kind of getting around them or bringing them to your side that it's advantageous to work with you as opposed to locking you out because they have a, sure. a, a monopoly on the marketplace? Yeah, and I, and I think um, it's just something I learned, I think, over at MoviePass is, uh, you know, they kind of went into the market um, with strength uh, and and kind of, you know, pissed off a bunch of players along the way, uh, including studios and exhibitors. And I remember seeing a lot of those conversations, but um, that's, that's not what we want to do. Um, we want to be just part of the ecosystem. We want to actually be the place where we can allow a new model to come about and allow consumer adoption to be seen. And it's often a lot easier to do so when you're a smaller startup because you're not cannibalizing your current world. Um, we're able to kind of test the market and see how the consumers respond. And it's been, we've been getting amazing feedback from the consumers uh, about the concept, right? And I think to your, to your point is what, what's gonna make it really explode is making sure we have a ton of inventory on the platform, um, just like any marketplace, because then it's a no brainer for the consumer. But uh, just to answer your question directly is we're not trying to compete with anybody. We, we just want everybody to look at our platform as just another marketing channel. So if you can leverage or think about multiple different marketplaces, right? So we would like to say where Airbnb meets ClassPass. Um, in the world of Airbnb, um, you know, they're really providing an, a marketing channel for some of these homes or even people that own hundreds of homes. Uh, a way to reach an audience. And in so doing, they're just sharing a revenue stream. So I look at that as really performance marketing, right? So if somebody's a rights holder and they can, they want to sell a ticket for 100% uh, face value, they're going to have to buy digital media or any kind of media and go out to the world and spend money in hopes that they can use that money effectively and people will come in and acquire the ticket. In our world, um, we're going to provide all that content and information to our members who we already know or avid or rabid, however you want to look at it, uh, fans of live music or film or sports. And by providing them an opportunity to acquire that through their membership at some you know, value that's different than going direct, um, they're just reaching a new audience. And for them to give us a discount or a revenue share for that, it just makes total sense. So we're not trying to cannibalize what they have. We're just trying to add a new stream of an audience that they may not reach or could reach through our channels. 
it it feels like for every again sports is our our primary focus at uh engagement and it, it feels like outside of a a green bay packers or an ohio state that have year-long waiting or multi-year-long waiting lists for every other property it would seem like this is almost a new brainer because a no-brainer because the majority of fans coming through the building might be single game tickets uh yep. and and this again opens up a new marketing channel for the those properties i, I agree i'll take you on uh, some of the meetings <laughs> <laughs> fair enough <clears throat> um well let's talk about kind of value creation i think anytime you get into a a subscription model more or less you know, I, I think about Netflix and, and Netflix is always investing billions of dollars in content and they have to because if you're not constantly creating new value within that subscription model, you're going to see impl- you're going to see uh, customer churn. People are going to just drop off sure. the subscription because they're not getting the value that they feel like they pay for. So how do you guys in the festival pass space, how do you think about what is valuable to the customers? how are you going about collecting that information from potential customers and current customers to figure out what is it that you guys care about? Is it frequency of events, types of events, the, the monetary value, how are you evaluating value if you will? Sure. So, um, so you, you said it earlier, but you realize I'm a, I'm a data guy at heart. Um, so the data is what drives everything related to what we have and, you know, just to even share initially is um, we have a 250 million person data graph on the back end of our infrastructure so that as we bring our members in, we're able to understand more and more about those members, uh, as well as have the infrastructure and data to be able to use AI uh, and to build a sophisticated recommendation engine for what they might want in the future. So as people come in, um, you know, initially we're still early, so we're just gathering data on some of our consumers. And, but, you know, the, go ahead. How, how, how are you gathering that data, I guess, specifically? I mean, how are you guys approaching it? Sure. So so when they first sign up, they, they sign up and create a member account just like they would at any, you know, any place, whether it's a Facebook or, you know, any kind of place where they're going to give uh, to join as a, as a member. Uh, and then during this the onboarding process, we ask a few questions, you know, what genre, what kind of music do you like? Uh, you know, do you like rock and roll? Do you like country? Um, you know, if these three festivals were one you'd want to go to, which would, which one would you choose? Um, so that begins this self-selecting process of them telling us what they like. Um, then we we know obviously the geo, right? We know the zip code they signed up from, so we know what events are in the local area that they want to um, see. Um, and then over time, we give them full control over adding or taking out some of that information. So if they go right to their settings page within our environment, they can immediately say, oh, well, I said I like football, but I don't want to see football events in the summer. So let me cross that one out and put in baseball. Um, so then all of a sudden, everything we feed them becomes part of, A, what they're self-selecting. B, um, you know, when you think of data, everything's everything from deterministic, self-reported, behavioral, um, and that that's considered self-reported. But behavioral is, OK, well, what would they actually do on the site? So did they visit baseball games on the site? Did they visit concerts on the site? So when we when we can track that usage pattern and just like on Facebook, there's a little heart button on every event. So how many events did they put a heart on? Right. So when we take all that data and put it together, we are able to then start building a profile of what they might like. And then even more powerful is what do they actually go to. So when they actually start going to events, you know, they might say they like baseball, but in three years, they haven't been to a baseball game. What, what, you know, how much, how much do you weight that? Yeah, I, I think that is a, I mean, I, so obviously we work with a lot of properties and and the teams themselves at engagement and it, it, it is really interesting. Everything that you just described from a data perspective as a small team, you guys are obviously doing far more than what a lot of these big teams are doing. I mean, we, we just launched, uh, a big program with one of our clients that that got a lot of press this week, but it was all around, a, you know, surveys. So we've got a group of 2000 fans that are self-selecting to be a part of this group. And we're surveying them a couple times a month on different types of topics to be able to collect that greater behavior or sure. self-reported behavior <clears throat> and uh, profile as opposed to just having buying history. But even within that, it's all self-reported, right? Like th- it's not the yep. actual behavior. And I, I just think there there should absolutely be more investment in looking at 
truly what are the behaviors of our fans, not just what are they reporting to us are the things that they care about. Correct. If, if you're, if you're a, if you were a property or, you know, any organization in this space, how would you guys, how would you advise them getting started at looking more at the deeper behavior? Like you guys have described is going to be crucial to festival pass. Sure. And, and a lot of that is what we helped a lot of these big television companies do early on. Right. So uh, at any point there is deterministic data. So what's your CRM? Do you have an email address? Do you have a a mobile phone number because they've been to a game before, because they've been to a movie before? Once you have that, um, you know, getting more information about them, some of it self-selected through a survey, great. But I mean, just the the horse is already out of the barn in the world of data. If you have a million fans and you have their email address, you can find out a lot about them. So you can go out to some of these data exchanges and and get information back. And it's not always... um, uh, you know, direct about that individual. It's anonymized, but it's pretty accurate uh, from the linkage. Um, so you can get information back on those people. Uh, and then it's really about, you know, using algorithms and AI to, to kind of cluster them. So like, what do these 100,000 people do? If they went to this game and wore blue shirts, did they also listen to country music? I don't know. Um, but that's the beauty of AI is you can, you can make a hypothesis and then let the computers do the work to cluster people based upon their attributes and their behaviors. It's it's we could go a lot deeper on this topic, but I know we got a, a lot of other things to cover here. Um, so switching gears a little bit, uh, let's talk about your future outlook on live events. Uh, obviously, uh, with with COVID coming and shutting down so many big live events, Sure. Uh, it's given you guys an opportunity to really look at all the nuts and bolts of the business and make sure your strategy is great. Uh, but let's talk about what your outlook is maybe for the next 12 months on the live event industry as a whole. Sure. So to, you mean the term roaring twenties doesn't, doesn't ring a bell. It, um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, it's just, I'm, I'm being facetious, but it's, uh, I'm starting to see across the board. Um, you know, luckily vaccines are being rolled out quickly. Uh, you know, I think Biden just yesterday said there should be 200 million out uh, by his first 100 days. But I'm seeing it even even in where I am here in Austin, Texas, that back in New York. You know, now most people I know are are getting access to the vaccine. So, so the point I'm trying to make is that most folks planning for events already started planning when um, you know over the last few months when when things were looking a little brighter. But I think more and more with the brightness happening. And the, and the sun shining through, there's more and more events being planned. So even the big guys, like you mentioned earlier, they have scheduled scheduled shows going out Q3, Q4, and then 2022 is going to be massive. Um, and then even the smaller guys, um, you know, we work with a lot of uh, a lot of independent venues, and they're all gearing up and getting ready to to open and 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 go. Um, I do see it happening in geographic pockets, right? So you're going to see Texas and Florida open up a lot quicker than you are New York and LA. But, you know, New York's already doing everything they can to get Broadway back and going because that's the the base of the entire tourism industry in New York is is fueled by Broadway. So I think by the fall, you'll see people in Broadway seats. And I think by the summer, you're going to see a lot of people at outdoor concerts. What what trends or I guess studies or reports are you paying attention to from a a consumer perception of safety. Cause I, I think that to me is what I'm most pessimistic about. I think from a government perspective, a lot of bans and whatnot will be a lot of limitations will be lifted here fairly shortly as we're starting to see. Uh, like I think Texas governor said, uh, right. Everybody could open at hundred percent capacity if they wanted to, but then you've got the individual individual cities taking slightly different approaches. Um, I think pretty soon we'll be back to, from a limitation perspective, maybe up to a hundred percent, but I don't know that the consumer confidence is going to quite follow. So I guess what trends or studies around consumer confidence are you really paying attention to? Because that is your whole business, right? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. And we even did a survey with a company called Fluent about three, four or five months ago. And when it wasn't like as rosy, um, and even then, I think 40 or 50% of the recipients of the tens of thousands that answered um, said they were excited to go back and would go back if they uh, found some safety protocols that made sense. Um, now, fast forward uh, a little further, 
there's, um, you know, obviously I, um, I watch the news and the surveys in the industry often. I talk to people every day um, and people are just seeing the consumer confidence rising. Uh, and I truly believe it, the vaccine is just the, the, the holy grail is, is when, when people re- either are vaccinated themselves and or believe that there's a, a large enough people have been, um, they don't have a problem wearing a mask. They don't have a problem going somewhere. Um, but I do believe that with vaccination is, is what is going to just trigger the consumer confidence. I'm, I'm super hopeful that that is the case. Uh, because again, I think our whole world has just been, it, it's missing the community and the camaraderie, sure. the, the emotions that come with live events. Uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of your strategy and how COVID has changed your strategy. Uh, from a festival pass sure. business perspective and how you guys are going to come out of it. Yeah. So we, we started launching festival pass kind of right before the COVID happened. And, and luckily one of our investors is a radio group called T- town square media. And, you know, they, they were sh- helpful and strong during the period of time and gave us the confidence that, okay, we're just going to buckle down and start building infrastructure. So that on the other side, uh, I never felt that events weren't coming back. I just didn't know exactly when. So we just spent time building the data infrastructure, um, building the consumer experience. Um, and the only thing really missing from our platform now is all the events. Um, so as they begin to come back and feed in through you know, an API, all of a sudden we'll have this really robust platform because the content will be there uh, and will be great. Um, but to really answer your question, um, a lot of people pivoted, right? A lot of people said, hey, we're gonna go right to streaming. And, you know, I thought about it a lot, and this is more of an entrepreneurial um, perspective, is being an entrepreneur for 20 years and being part of an international entrepreneur group, um, we, we all are guilty of chasing the shiny nickel or, uh, you know, new idea, new place, 100%. jump on it. Um, and I, I am too through my life, but, but I really sat down and thought about it. And I said, you know what, uh, we, we're not the right person to be the one producing live streams. Um, eventually what I think is beautiful about COVID is that live streams happened. A lot of people put significant amount of investment into the live stream industry. So now on the other side, it will be a very complimentary aspect of the live entertainment business, but it won't replace it. Um, so we chose not to jump into that. Not that we will on festival pass have live streams, but we will just partner with people that own those live streams and let people pay credits to see a live stream. But uh, but we don't we're not going to turn into a live stream only platform. I I one hundred percent think you're right that it's super complimentary at this point. Like I, I look at I don't did you see the Billie Eilish live stream that she did? Uh, earlier I knew summer? about it, but I did not yeah. watch it. But yeah. I didn't watch it either. But I, I you know I looked at as many screenshots and whatnot as I could, and it, it was it was wild the whole setup that they had, and she did a really yeah. good job monetizing what people were doing for free at the beginning of COVID. And, yeah. But to your point, I think it is a different it's a different audience, right? I think if you go to a live event, you're going to that live event because you want to be high-fiving strangers. You want to feel you want to feel yep. the stadium or the arena rocking, right? Um I agree. You, you want to be able to taste the food at the the food festival. And you can't do yep. those things at a at a live stream. I think if you're going purely for content, you're going for live stream. If you're going for all the amazing things that we love about live events, you're going in person. It's it's not sure. going to detract from that. Yeah, and where, where I think live streams are going to be fun, uh, and, and we'll see. We have plans to kind of do this on our platform, but we still got a you know few months off before we can do it. But uh, even in the independent music scene, it's the location specific is so fascinating and interesting. And I might be really into you know rock or metal or pick, pick country doesn't matter. But maybe one night in the evening, I'm not going to the shows, but one of my favorite bands is playing in Austin at Stubbs or at Empire Control Room and uh, I can go on to Festival Pass and, uh, you know, for five credits, I can sit and watch my favorite band for a half hour. And then I could flip over to L.A. to the Viper Room and see my second favorite band because they're going to be playing somewhere else. So maybe the whole night for an hour and a half or whatever, I drink a glass of wine, have a beer and I watch three or four bands in this space that, you know, I can visualize them being in because I visited the, some of those clubs. That to me could be a fun complimentary channel. It doesn't mean I'm not going to get on and get in my car and go to one of those clubs the next night. It just means that I'm able to kind of not miss the show. Yeah, 
I, I think it's going to be really cool to see the space uh, in 12 months where how different it is and, and where we're at. You mentioned something about the being an entrepreneur and and ha- having the shiny penny effect, if you will, or the what I don't know. I don't remember how you described it, but seeing that thing out there and then saying, oh, should we pivot and switch to that? Yeah. And and I want to talk a little bit about, again, the people that are listening to this show tend to be more senior leaders in the sports and entertainment space. Mm-hmm. I think too often as it relates to ideas and execution, people see an idea and they see it fail and they dismiss the idea completely. And yep. as opposed to saying it was an execution problem, not an idea problem. And we, we see that all the time because we'll come in and we'll suggest an idea and they'll be like, ah, oh, we tried that before. And I'm like, yeah, but let's talk about why it went wrong and what we can do differently because it's a good idea and it's been proven in other spaces. Yep. Uh, so how do you, what frameworks do you use to identify whether or not it's a good idea and bad execution, or if it truly was just a bad idea that, that doesn't make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to be a little silly on the story, but, uh, when you think of the fax machine, right, it was, the, it was the first marketplace you needed, you needed two people to have a fax machine for it to work. So the idea was great. And when it came out, you know, it didn't really take off in the first couple of years because nobody else had a fax machine. And then eventually people got them and then that marketplace actually worked. I'm using that as an example of, you know, ideas that later don't work. I'm old enough to remember Internet 1.0. Uh, do you guys remember Cosmo.com or Urban Fetch? I don't. They, they, they went through hundreds of millions of dollars and they are effectively the 1.0 of DoorDash and Uber Eats and Grubhub. And it's, it's the same model. It's just slightly different because the economics work now. Um, so it goes on and on like food delivery. If you remember... Uh, I forget delivery.com. There was some some huge internet 1.0 bust, um, but that's Instacart right now is valued at forty billion dollars. So, uh, yeah. so it's 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 to, to your point, it's just time and place, uh, and of course, technology has changed and all those things. So, uh, so I agree with you. Ideas come, and sometimes it's not the right time for them, and or the execution isn't done well. And you know, I even I even think of my own. Um, my first business, which was an e-commerce company in 1999 that I sold in 2001. It was called City Stuff. And we sold it to an e-commerce company based in Stanford, Stanford, Connecticut. But at the time, I sold it because, um, you know, A, I was an early 20s kid and got a bunch of stock in the other company. And I thought I was rich on paper. And eventually, it went to zero But uh, after 9-11. But, uh, but even in the process, I wish I had held on to the company. Because if I just waited out a couple of years, all of a sudden this thing called Google and Facebook and everything came about, and and all of a sudden uh, the ability to uh, reach a massive audience existed, but it didn't exist back then. We were we were trying to uh, market, you know, the actual .dot com. I mean, me and my business partner, we'd stand out with big signs called CitySuff.com in the audience at the Today Show, hoping somebody would randomly see it and go to it. Um, wow. Times have changed. So, so as it relates to that though, I mean, how do you evaluate whether or not, like, like what are the steps or things that goes through your head where you're evaluating whether or not this is a good idea? It's just too early or this is the right time. It is the right product market fit. What kind of frameworks do you have in your head for evaluating that? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, um, with Festival Pass specifically, is uh, I knew the subscription business model worked, whether it worked in this industry or whether it worked for this product, um, you know, takes a little thinking. But in general, subscription models work. Um, there is a value for somebody to know and budget against a certain monthly price and hopefully do so in a way to get more value than if they just did it initially. Um, and the second thing for me was learning about what has worked and what hasn't worked in other places. Um, you know, in I mentioned ClassPass, and it it was hard. For, they had a couple hundred million dollar lesson for the first four or five years of building, and then they hit on something that actually changed the entire trajectory of their business. So I, I see that, and I learn, and I said, well, okay, well, maybe this industry can also um, learn from something like that because it worked in one industry. Um, now let's see if the consumer adoption of understanding that I'm paying a monthly fee and now I know how to use credits against something, um, it works. So in, especially in the B2B space, credits have been around forever. Um, you know, people buy software and they get credits, people use email systems and they get credits to send emails. Um, you know, the old days on the, uh, on the physical nature, I mean, we've all been to an arcade, uh, in arcades, you put 20 bucks in and you get a bunch of tokens. 
And then you take your tokens and you spend four of them at a driving game, but you spend one on the pinball machine. It just makes sense. And you're okay with that because each one has a different price. Got it. So it's, it's really, it's really, uh, if I heard you right, it's really looking at the different industries, taking the core principles of the idea saying, have these core principles worked in other places? What was the consumer adoption there? What issues did they have? And then how can we maybe adjust and apply that? And ultimately you're still taking a risk and experimenting with it, but you're, you're constantly looking for the underlying principles of what's driving that idea. Correct. Correct. And even, uh, you know, if I go back to the movie past days is they had zero gross margin, even a negative gross margin. So that was really hard to catch up with. Whereas with a credit-based currency, every single transaction is gross margin positive. Whether it's a smaller margin or a bigger one, at least you're not losing money every time somebody transacts. And then there's other ways to provide value to the consumer with other benefits. All right. So as we get closer to the end of the episode, I really am interested to hear what trends you're paying attention to in the live event space. Sure. So, so I think um, during COVID, there was a, a couple of things that were happening that were required because of safety, but I think we'll continue thereafter from an experiential side. One of those is pods, if you will, like um, the ability to, to go in. Um, some of the events that actually have been happening would allow these pods. So people would get 10 of their friends and they'd stand in a certain square on a lawn for a concert or even here in Austin. You've probably been hearing about the Joe Rogan, Dave Chappelle shows at Stubbs. Uh, effectively, there, you know, you have to buy four tickets at a time. So uh, the price is pretty extravagant for Dave Chappelle, but Dave Chappelle is Dave Chappelle. But uh, so, you know, you're paying $250 a ticket, you have to buy four at a time, you're out $1,000 just for a small table, and you haven't even bought food and drinks yet, but people are willing to pay it. Um, I think what I'm trying to say about trends is that I think there's going to be more of this ability to reorganize rooms or spaces where there is a small piece of the overall audience that is willing to pay more money for a more intimate kind of unique VIP experience. And I think as long as there's enough of those out there, people will do that. So, you know, there will always be the mass audience at a concert. Um, but I do believe that people are willing to pay to have a little section down by the stage and be able to access the bar easily. I mean, we've all seen VIP sections, but with COVID, I think that's pushing and advancing that process. Yeah, I, I agree. I've had a couple conversations with senior leaders in the space where they've said that they had live football games this fall and they actually got feedback from their fans saying, you know, we actually kind of like the extra space that's around. I like that I don't have somebody right on top of me. I like that I don't have to wait yeah. as long in concession lines. And so, you know, then then I think as a senior leader, you're now faced with this this conversation of do we start reducing capacity at our venues, but upping the prices of our tickets and how do we go about that? So I'm, I'm really interested to see how that, that those trends go uh, in the next 12 months. I agree. Any, anything else on the fringes that you're paying attention to? Um, I mean, everything uh, for the next year or two, um, it's just going to accelerate in terms of the amount people do so many artists and so many, Folks that are in live events, whether it's chefs, whether it's you name it, um, they're just dying to get back out there. So yeah. I just think there's going to be a lot more smaller events happening just because people are willing to do them. Um, you know, whereas in some worlds as an artist, you might get tired being on tour, um, you know, at least for 21, 22 uh, people are just going to be everywhere. So I think the tours are going to be longer. I think people are going to be stopping at smaller venues. You're going to, I believe you'll get a, like an arena act or a large act, somebody that might only play 25, 30,000 seat kind of amphitheater playing a 5,000 seat theater just because they want to be out. Yeah. It, it, it's going to be really interesting, especially in the concert space. I mean, we had a, we did an episode with a guy named Dan Runcie who runs a, a newsletter called Trapital and is all about mm. kind of the business of hip hop. And it was really interesting hearing his take on how a lot of these artists who, you know, from an artist perspective, different from a sports team perspective, mm-hmm. you got a couple of years where you're hot, right? Yep. And if you got hot right before COVID kind of sucks because you can't go on tour, you can't take advantage of it. So it's yep. been interesting hearing how, how some of those artists have tried to think of other ways to monetize while they're hot, uh, if you will. Yep. No, I agree. Um, all right. Well, let, let's think about uh, from a business perspective. I, I want to hear one of the most worthwhile investments that you've made uh, as it comes to delivering 
on a great customer experience uh, for the for the people that you guys have had. Could be could be investment of money, could be time, could be energy. My thoughts are you're probably going to say something around data and analytics, but uh, I'll open that up to you. So one of the most best or worthwhile investments from a business perspective. From a business perspective, I was going to say time with my kids, but that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> but no. hey, you know what? If it, if it makes you more energized in the workplace, it works. Yeah, no, I, I think um, t- a little bit to your point about um, the building infrastructure first um, that allows that data collection. Like one of the things I've seen in multiple companies, and I won't name specific ones, but uh, um, sometimes people grow faster than they uh, can can fill in the holes. And it, it makes it harder later to fix things. Um, you know, for example, even with MoviePass, I can use that as an example. I mean, they grew three and a half million subscribers in one year. Um, that's really hard to keep the tech infrastructure and data infrastructure up to address that. Um, so one of the things that I think, you know, for me, the time and energy to put in infrastructure first so that as things come in, it can scale um, is just the only way to grow a company fast. Yeah. I mean, from a data perspective, I think it's especially interesting, right? Like I I mentioned this program that we launched earlier this week uh, with one of our clients and the amount of time that we spent setting up what, what are we going to do with the data analytics? And a lot of like the comments we've gotten on Twitter and whatnot is like, Oh, like seems like a lot. And we're like, yeah, we've been working on this for like eight months trying to set up (laughs) Who's going to be analyzing the data? What type of reports are going to come out? What are we doing with all that data? Yep. How is it getting distributed? And again, if you just go at it with an idea without setting up that infrastructure first, I think it's it's tough to scale, as, as you put it. Um, well, what what advice would you give to a leader trying to ultimately create a culture that's more focused on this delivering value around the customer experience like you did with MoviePass and like you're definitely doing with, with Festival Pass now? Sure. I mean... Um... I won't say anything new, but it's the adoption of design thinking. It's one of our core values uh, at, at Vessel of Pass. I mean, I, I'm sure you're aware design thinking doesn't just mean making pretty designs. Uh, it's it's how you approach the entire process of building a product. Um, so I personally believe design thinking is the only way to build any consumer product. So all that really means is by the time you begin the process of building, you're already thinking about the end. You're already thinking about how is the consumer going to kind of consume this product uh, and then everything is kind of built backwards so that you're doing everything to reach that means end goal of the consumer. Um, so that honestly, if, if, if you haven't used design thinking, I'm sure you have, but uh, as a person maybe listening to this podcast, go read a design thinking book. It's It just changes the way you think about building product. Go read a design thinking book. Great one to get started on is Design Sprint. Uh, I, think, I, think, I think it's Jake Knapp's book, right? Like just the that's like kind of like the design sprint Bible, right? Design hmm. thinking. You can go look at IDEO as a great yeah. resource. You could hire engagement because that's quite literally what we do with clients a lot of times is like, all right, let's take the specific problem. Let's go through some design sprints and design thinking practices to ultimately think about how the customer is going to get it. Um, how, can you give an ex- specific example for somebody that's new to th- hearing about design thinking about how how you guys use it? Sure. I mean, um, so so part of everything we're doing at Festival Pass is really changing the way people traditionally acquire a ticket to go to an event, right? So without saying anything negative about any other ticketing companies, it's very transactional, right? So people decide they want to go somewhere, they see it, they go, they get a ticket, they pay a fee. Um, there's not much love or community around brands in the ticketing space. It's really just a transaction. I want to go to this event. I want to get the ticket. I want to go. I think that should change. Um, for me, it's really there. You need a brand and a community in order to feel that you want to stay around and share that that amazing experience that you have at the event with the people along the way. So when you when I think about that process, I want to make sure that the product we're building is the most frictionless, easy to use social experience. And how do you do that? So if that's the end goal, uh, and how do you deliver that through a mobile app, and how do you deliver that through a web app? At the end of the day, how do we back up and say, okay, well, if I want to recommend the best discovery of product, which is events, to a person at the right time, I need the right data infrastructure to do so. I need the right scalable visual so that when they're looking on the page or in their app, you know, if thousands of events exist, 
I can only show them five, 10, 15 at a time. So I want to make sure I have the data talking to me to make sure the right five or 10 are there. So that's kind of a long way of saying is, is if the eventual goal is a frictionless consumer oriented community, in order to do that, we have to think about how to build the data infrastructure to allow for it to happen. I am I am so excited to see live events come back and see what you guys do with it because again from the way that you're approaching it I do believe that it is different than a lot of some of maybe the the people that have been in the space before where again to your point not not naming names but I'm going to name names just off the top of my head like whether I'm trying to buy a ticket from for an event right now, whether it's on Ticketmaster or StubHub or SeatGeek, I've got no loyalty to any of those brands. It's just yeah. where can I get the best price and where can I get what I'm trying to look at exactly. versus you guys are taking a more emotional connection approach, if you will, and then backing up and saying, how do we support that? Agreed. Uh, I, I think if you're if you're listening to this and you're a senior leader at a property, at an event, right? I, I think it would be awesome from, from the way that Ed has talked about what they're trying to do from the product. It, it could be a really cool marketing channel for you guys to get on because they're approaching that customer experience a little bit differently in a way that's going to boost your brand as well. Um, so Ed, why don't, why don't we close there? Where can people follow along your journey? Uh, check out what's happening with festival pass. If someone wants to get in touch with you as to putting their events on, uh, on your platform, give us some, some contact information or where people can uh, follow along. Sure. So the, the simplest is the website festivalpass.com. That's the easiest place to go to, to find about the product. Um, we're obviously on Facebook and Instagram and starting to play with TikTok a little bit and haven't really done much yet on that. Um, and then uh, for me personally, you know, from a business perspective, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to get me. Um, my name, Ed Vincent. Um, but uh, if, if, if somebody is just a smaller event looking to be listed on Festival Pass, they can just go right to the website and click the four partners tab and, and fill out uh, you know, what their event is. But if it's more like a larger organization that runs a team or an arena, you know, they can just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I love it. Well, Ed, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, look forward to our next conversation and, and look forward to seeing what you guys come out with here in the next 12 months. Awesome. I appreciate it, David. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ed. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.